Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is Gigabit Nation. Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more better broadband everywhere that it needs to be in the U.S. Uh, we got a notice uh, over the weekend, actually, of a new um, deal that's bubbling up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, that is going to bring uh, 100 gigs of speed to businesses in some 24 counties in Northeast Ohio. And I think uh, we could justify this as being a pretty big deal and should have a very significant impact on the, uh, the, the, those communities. And I was fortunate enough to be able to get um, the president of Everstream, which is the, uh, the for-profit arm of one community, uh, Brett Lindsay, to be our guest today and talk about um, the network, well, I guess it's actually an expansion of the network um, and how it came about, and what good things are in store for Northeast Ohio as a result of this. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So let's kick right off. What is one community? Because I know there are probably a lot of my listeners who are familiar, but there's also a lot that probably have not heard of one community before. And then we can talk about EverStream and, and then this marvelous 100 gig announcement. Sure. So One Community is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization that was started back in 2003, and the predominant focus was to bring broadband to the masses, specifically targeted towards what's referred to as lessening the burden of government. So we've been focused on healthcare, government, and education, and making sure that fiber-based services were made available to those community anchor institutions across our footprint. And we have been on a build mode, if you will, since 2003 to make that happen. Mm-hmm. The, the most uh, pressing thing that's happened over the last three years is in 2010, we received a couple different grants, one from the FCC and then another broadband stimulus build, which has allowed for us to invest upwards of $100 million into Northeast Ohio since 2010. And that's what's then allowed for us to push forward fiber into thousands of community anchor institutions across our existing footprint. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then you made the decision to create um, EverStream as a for-profit uh, arm of the organization. How did that decision come about, and what was it that drove that particular decision? Well, the biggest driver was the broadband stimulus funds that we took because one of the stipulations in receiving those funds is that you maintain an open network, and that open mm-hmm. network is available to everyone. So not only then are we serving our community and institutions, which were targeted and, and were built to as part of the broadband stimulus grant, but they also want for-profit customers 
businesses, et cetera, to be able to use the network. And we also have to make it available to our competitors. So not only do we sell lit services through EverStream to business customers, we also offer lit services and dark fiber to our carrier customers and, in fact, our comp- competition within our marketplace. Mm-hmm. So does that mean then that every entity that received um, – uh, broadband stimulus money has to go this route, or was there something particular about, uh, you know, your situation that led to this? No, the open network is an actual requirement in the documents that you sign with the federal government to receive the broadband stimulus funds. Um, in fact, there is a what's called a federal interest that the government has in any of the uh, BTOP recipients. Those the, the broadband stimulus recipients all have to agree that those assets that they have invested in will continue to be open for the life, uh, basically the life cycle, if you will, of that fiber. So if that fiber's got a a term of life of 20 years, you have to provide that open network for the entire life of the fiber. Right, okay. No, I mean, I got that part. I was wondering about the the, where you guys created the for-profit as a way, you know, as part of that, because I was under the impression that you could, as a nonprofit, still have a open access network because most of the folks that got not I shouldn't say most a lot of the organizations that got stimulus money were nonprofits. But I haven't heard of any of them, and maybe I'm just out of the loop. But I haven't, don't remember hearing of any of them creating a for-profit entity in order to to do that. That was the decision-making I was wondering about, was the non-profit, I'm sorry, the for-profit. Why set that up? So there's a couple reasons. Um, And and everyone is different based upon what type of a non-profit you are. You know, if you're a university, that's one structure. If you're a foundation, that's another. But as a 501c3, we have specific tax consequences based upon how you deliver services. So any services that are basically attributable to our mission, so government, healthcare, and education, you can generate revenue for services for those products and put them into the nonprofit. But as you start to sell to for-profit entities that are outside of your core mission, you can run that revenue through the nonprofit. But as you generate more revenue from a for-profit perspective, it's best to create a subsidiary. Um, in Northeast Ohio, there happens to be a great uh, a number of great examples that are large nonprofit organizations that have for-profit subsidiaries. And so in working with our outside legal counsel, they recommended that that was the best path for us, was that because we thought that we were going to experience double-digit growth on the for-profit side of our organization you know, sales efforts, that we should run those through a for-profit subsidiary. So the, the great news is that even if you have a for-profit subsidiary, any of the profits that are generated there are all still owned and maintained by the nonprofit. So as EverStream generates cash from selling network services, those proceeds roll back up into one community to help fund network expansion to community anchor institutions or to run programming. Okay. So is there a um, so if there are other nonprofits in other states listening in? Um, is there a, I don't know, some sort of either rule of thumb or, or some sort of, you know, you ask yourself these four questions to figure out if this approach makes sense for you? I mean, how, how would others, might others, uh, approach this, uh, this, this question or this issue? I think the real question is the percentage of revenue that people believe they're going to get from either their non-for-profit or for-profit activities. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the real issue for us, and I'm not going to say it's the same for everyone, is that 
as a nonprofit, you have to go through what's called a public support test, which is basically to say how much of your of your revenue are you getting from not-for-profit activity versus for-profit, as well as how much money are you bringing in a new grants. And this is kind mm-hmm. of a five-year rolling test that takes place. And we knew that because we had received this large federal grant that, that we were good for our rolling five-year test, but knew that coming up in 2015, as those federal grants expired and weren't included in that same test, that we would need to do two things. A, spin off our for-profit activity because we believed that it was going to continue to grow. And secondarily, make certain that we have enough other grant activity coming in to our organization to make certain that we stay on the right side of that public support test that the IRS has you go through. Uh, okay. So so it does take a little bit of a, um, a detailed analysis process to go through to kind of figure out, oh, well, we should do this and here's why and the benefits and so forth and so on. Absolutely. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. So So coming back to... Uh, then this, uh, this, this 100 gig, you know, my, the, the first question that comes to my mind is, um, I know that you guys are going to be going out to 24 counties, but uh, Cleveland is pretty much a large urban major metropolitan area. And in our national discourse about broadband, we talk forever and a day about rural broadband, which is fine because they have needs but we just seem to not give the urban areas any kind of, you know, play, attention, what have you. What is the nature of the need in, in, in a place like Cleveland? Um, and, and why is it not getting the same attention that, you know, we give to the need in, in rural America? Well, I think in general there's still a, an assumption that, that I would put out there as a fallacy, that there's tons of fiber sitting in the ground in every major metropolitan area across the U.S., which is, is obviously not the case. And even if there is some fiber sitting there, it's not lit up or connected to anything in a lot of ways. So you have people that believe that those big urban areas, and especially because in, in our area, you know, the urban areas are served by AT&T. So if you're thinking of Cleveland, Akron, Canton, Youngstown, um, those areas all have, you know, a phone company, if you will, that has been in business for a long time and that it continues to tout that they're making investments into those communities. And so I think it, it tends to fall on deaf ears as to how much investment actually needs to go into the urban areas to make certain that schools, libraries, medical institutions, governments all have access to that same network, but even more importantly, that the business community has access to it because from a ability to do two things, A, retain and keep the businesses that are there in your specific city as well as attract new businesses into your city. If you don't have that fiber infrastructure, you're going to be one of the have-nots. And so we've spent a significant amount of time, I mean, most recently, uh, we worked with the city of Cleveland on going after a grant to up, upgrade our network in a specific segment that today runs at 10 gigabit and up to 100 gigabit so that we could help attract and and create interest in that pocket. And so we've been working with the city of Cleveland to do that. We've got other areas in our community that are both rural and urban that are both getting to the point of understanding that they need to have fiber infrastructure, that it is in fact that fourth utility that must be brought into their communities. But even still, there there are fewer than not of the, the folks that are leading these counties and cities that have an understanding of what fiber even really means. So there's still a significant amount of education that still needs to take place, both at a local, state, and federal level, 
to get people to understand that there's still a tremendous need for, for further investment in fiber throughout the, you know, for throughout the U.S. for that matter, but specifically in our in Northeast Ohio communities. Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that what's really needed or what's really missing is a, um, is a broadband education campaign that looks at both evenly, you know, looks at rural and urban as a, you know, as a complete U.S. broadband need and not just a uh, where you have few people and a bunch of cows, this is where broadband needs to go first. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we, we believe that obviously the needs are, are vast in both areas. And so when we're doing things, for example, like, you know, we've been working with the FCC as they look at revamping E-rate, basically the, the way that they help subsidize uh, the state and school districts for spending on technology as it relates to education and trying to figure out the best way to leverage existing assets. You know, so you've got, if, you know, in Ohio, for example, you had three BTOP recipients, we all had both urban and rural areas in our builds, and the idea being that, gee, if the federal government has already spent a significant amount of money in building middle-mile fiber across the entire state, it would make sense to leverage that for, with the FCC from an E-rate perspective. And so collectively, the state, Department of Education, the folks that run the individual school districts, as well as us, are collectively going back to the FCC and saying, there are assets here that are both urban and rural that can be utilized. Let's try to figure out how to make them you know." more cost-effective for everyone and invest in something for the future as opposed to just continuing to pay for that same, you know, 10-meg circuit that's been going into that school for the last three years, which isn't meeting the needs of the school, but also don't put a plan in place that says you're just going to keep spending more money year after year after year as opposed to buying some dark fiber, looking at infrastructure, and managing it more holistically as it relates to education or government uh, across the entire state. So we play almost kind of a, a role in helping lobby the FCC for them. Obviously, we're not a lobbyist, but, you know, lobby the FCC with ideas and, and meet with them to try to figure out how you could do things like that, both meeting the needs for urban and rural folks. Right. Do you find the FCC and the federal government in general to be a malleable partner in the sense of, um, you know, the, the FCC, the FCC's E-rate program, for example, um, I started hearing about this you know, a number of years ago. I mean, almost, I guess, before the broadband stimulus in '09, And the most common phrase used to describe E-rate was that it was inflexible. It was, it was a program that meant well, but it had so many rigid restriction, uh, constrictions that it made any kind of innovation or just dealing with the evolution of technology, you know, how things change and evolve within technology industries. And so the, the, the inflexibility was considered the biggest weakness of the program. Uh, has that gotten any better over the last year or two? Yeah, I definitely think it has. I mean, we continue to work with you know, our customers that receive E-rate funding as well as working directly with the FCC to make certain that people understand a, you know, how eligible are they for E-rate, but also learning what's changed. So over, you know, over the last, gosh, I guess it's been 18 to 24 months, you can actually start to go to the FCC for, for E-rate dollars for things like dark fiber. And if you bid it out appropriately and go through the right channels, you can actually invest in things that previously you could not, where it was just, you know, it had to be just kind of monthly recurring services, IT equipment, things like that. But I think most importantly, and 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 we had it with, uh, Jenikowski, but we're also moving, you know, obviously with Wheeler now, 
as chairman where you know we had conversations with the previous administration and, and talked through that. But I think most recently we've seen, um, I guess, a greater appreciation for what's happening at the state level and figuring out how to partner with people better to solve bigger problems as opposed to just each individual school district going and asking for E-rate money and filing the application and going through that whole process. If we did it on a more collective basis and tried to address an entire state's need, we might be able to get you know, a better use of the money from the FCC, and they might be more interested in, in in making a larger investment in a specific state if they could see that because there was this collective um, opportunity to support multiple school districts across multiple areas, both urban and rural, in a collective way, almost in a consortium model, they're asking for states to do that. So most recently, um, you know, we've been working with as I mentioned, you know, the state and the local school districts to come up with an expression of interest, if you will, going to the FCC saying, hey, this is a recommended change on how you should have E-rate work. And they're listening and they're asking for feedback. So I I do think that whether you want to call it E-rate 2.0 or what have you, I think there are definitely going to be some changes that we'll see yet this year um, for funding in 2015. Mm -hmm. Do... um Not sure where that came from. Uh, one of the things about uh, the program, your EverStream program, or the announcement that caught my eye, was the focus on businesses. Um, were they not being covered before? Were they not being covered, or is, is this an extension specifically for them? Uh, what was what was your I don't know the role of your business subscribers, you know, pre EverStream versus what it will be going forward? Well, I think the the benefit that we have is that we've been serving, um, you know, the community anchor institutions. But in Northeast Ohio, healthcare really drives the economy. We have some mm-hmm. very large health institutions, and and some of those institutions have, you know, thirty, fifty, a hundred locations that are sitting on our network, and we're providing services to them. And what we started to see is that because our footprint is fairly ubiquitous in Northeast Ohio, and crosses not only the you know the primary competitors of AT and T and Time Warner, but we also then go into lots of other service areas where there's you know old Verizon territories that are now Frontier, and we've got CenturyLink and Windstream, and you know on and on. And so if you are a large enterprise with multiple locations across all these counties, you don't necessarily want to be doing business with five different vendors to cobble together a wide area network for your your needs. You would rather go to a partner that has a footprint that crosses all of these different points of interest for you and can put them on a single network that's running at 10 gigabit speeds and can basically provide you unlimited connectivity for Internet, for cloud, for anything that your enterprise is looking for. And what we started hearing was, you know, folks in town that know that we've done well in the healthcare space on the nonprofit side, working with institutions like university hospitals or Metro Health, Akron Children's, et cetera, are coming to us and saying, gee, can you replicate that for us? And as we kept getting more expressions of interest, it became, you know, a light bulb moment, if you will, that that was obviously something that we needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and secondly, the carrier business is, is growing for us. I mean, we've started doing construction uh, fiber to the tower. So, you know, as carriers continue to need more and more bandwidth to, to feed the insatiable appetite of people, you know, downloading things to their, you know, droids, iPhones, iPads, etc., you know, that wireless infrastructure all rides on fiber until it gets to the tower. And so every large wireless carrier in the country is looking for ways to upgrade the speeds that they have out to the tower. 
And so as we started looking at, gee, that's an opportunity for us as well. Again, we've got this ubiquitous footprint that crosses this entire area. We could be a good vendor partner for these folks. And as we started winning some of that business, it became clear that we needed to, to look at how we were structured and, and, and push that uh, envelope further. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that makes a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of sense that as the network grows and evolves um, and as it crosses different territories, uh, a variety of opportunities are going to present themselves um, that weren't on the, on the drawing board initially. Uh, when, you know, when a lot of these communities such as yours, you know, went after broadband stimulus money, went after other money, you know, launched their projects. And um, I would say that it, it makes sense to, uh, I guess, warn communities that when you let this broadband genie out of the bottle and you start delivering 50 and 100 meg and then on up to a gig service and beyond, that people start to take notice. And typically, you know, it seems like demand is so pent up in so many places that you can actually be swamped as a, uh, you know, as a community broadband provider if you have not somehow, I don't know, put in a mechanism for adjusting to the growth you know, adjusting to the new opportunities and how do you sort through them and all of that. Um, do you find that to be true? And how did you guys, I don't know, internally prepare or did you internally prepare for this onslaught of opportunity? Well, for sure. I mean, I think the difficulty for a lot of the BTOP recipients is the fact that they weren't network service providers prior to asking for funding. You know, you had a lot of state-run entities, universities, et cetera, who decided that they wanted to get into this be- for obvious reasons, which is great. But if you haven't been a network provider before and understand not only the complexity but also the cost of running and, and the sustainability requirements to keep a network up and running long term, th- there's going to be difficulty for some of those folks to, to make certain that they can sustain their networks. You know, so we were already a network service provider with existing fiber assets, you know, both from our own that were gifted to one community at its inception through the FCC uh, rural healthcare pilot program that we built and then broadband stimulus. So when we designed our stimulus network, not only was it focused on reaching community anchor institutions, but we also knew that there was going to be sustainability. When you've got thousands of miles of, of fiber infrastructure with tens of thousands of telephone poles, you know, 20 hub sites, you know, thousands of on-net buildings, all those things, that starts to require a significant staff who needs to be experienced in running a network. And those people typically have been at network service providers, CLEX, et cetera, who bring that expertise into one community. And so that's what we assembled as we won our BTOP grant was to make certain that we had the right people on the bus to drive an actual network service organization. And so as we've continued to grow on the nonprofit side through our community anchor institutions, making that leap, if you will, to working with for-profit customers is, is much easier um, than it might be for somebody that hadn't been a network service provider before they you know, received their award. Which generally leads to a recommendation that somewhere down the growth pattern, communities need to think about hiring someone that has some sort of telecom industry experience. Uh, oh, Absolutely. I mean, it's and it's not to take anything away from city, county, state organizations. I mean, a lot of those uh, organizations have great IT staff and CIOs and things like that. But 
you know, it's kind of like managing an IT team along with your sewer lines and your water lines and your electric. I mean, the, you know, there's all those kind of complexities that come with it. And if, if they're not looking at it, that it that it is that complex that they need to look at it as if, you know, gee, would they want to jump into power generation and running their own poles and, and maintenance and being in that billing and customer service and all of those things? Because that's what you're really jumping into when your your broadband, as you mentioned, starts to take off. Because more people become aware of it, everybody wants to jump on. How do they? How do they get the service? You know, what's the model that you're using to make certain that your pricing is not only competitive in the marketplace, but that you're generating enough income to, you know, to sustain the business long term. Mm-hmm. Was there somewhere along the route where you guys did a um, a pilot project or several pilot projects? Well, yeah, we've done a number of pilot projects. I mean, the 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 largest was the rural healthcare pilot program in which. And we received funding to build roughly 300 miles of fiber and and pick up 16 rural hospitals that, that really just didn't have an opportunity to buy gigabit bandwidth from, from anyone in their area. And so we did that build. Uh, it's, it's actually been a great way for us to show that by leveraging you know federal money to do those types of grants that we can expand it. So you know we've gone over... Uh, on, on those same assets that we built originally in partnership with the FCC, where FCC put up money and we put up match, uh, was to target 16. You know, we now have over 100 hospitals and clinics being served off of that fiber that we constructed. So the multiplier effect of being able to take federal money into an organization that's focused on growing and and building more laterals and adding more customers uh, is significant. So, you know, if you're talking, you know, 6x, uh, the number of locations that were originally expected are now riding that fiber only a few years later after it was finished. I think those are the stories of success that more people need to be aware of, that 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 is, in my mind, how these programs should, should work ultimately. Now, one of the challenges I think the communities have, especially communities that were involved in the, the broadband stimulus program, for those communities that built middle mile networks, well, not even just, just communities, but communities, public-private partnerships, uh, providers, and so forth, have they come to a spot where as these networks are finishing or have finished, say, I don't know, over the last six to eight, nine months, that people are now trying to figure out how to get last mile networks built because one of the things that I viewed as a flaw in the process was that there wasn't, in my mind, enough education of the people receiving the grants that um, getting people, getting communities, getting somebody to build last mile networks is not going to be an easy process. And, and, and by way of example, I'll, I'll talk about, um, you know, so there's, there's a network in, in, in one particular state. I don't want to put them on the spot exactly. But they, they, they built a, um, uh, a middle-mile network that encompasses, I don't know, 12, 13 towns, townships, and so forth. And uh, all throughout the build-out, everyone in the communities were assuming that when the build-out was done, they would have access. And then what they find out later is that, okay, we've completed the network, we have a big lighting ceremony, the governor shows up, all this good stuff. And then um, the next thing is, well, now you need to build the last mile network. You need to connect to the middle mile. And people were confused, surprised, angry, generally not happy. Um, 
did we set the stage for a lot of this to happen in a lot of states? I'm not saying it was the case necessarily with you guys, but, you know, if you look across the board, have we created that kind of a, uh, I don't know, disconnect? Well, I think you clearly have in some areas. I mean, to take your example a little bit further, I mean, what you're describing, I think, did happen in a number of different states where, in essence, you built this great highway of fiber, but, you know, the off-ramps don't exist. And if people don't understand that being a network operator is a highly capital-intensive business, that's a problem. And I think that is part of the issue, that folks came into this believing, okay, I'm going to take these funds for a – fairly parochial, you know, solution that I'm trying to solve for, uh, you know, my county, my state, my education system, et cetera. And, and they look at it that way. But we know from being a network service provider before and having, you know, existing lines of credit with the banks and, uh, you know, access to working capital and the things that are needed to make your network run long term, that we were going to have to continue to invest in last mile construction to generate revenue from customers that allows for us to reinvest and, you know, kind of keep building in this kind of evergreen model that we have where all of the proceeds are then reinvested back into our region. Um, but I think for someone, again, who hasn't been a network service provider, and it sounds great to win, you know, 20 million, 30 million, whatever million dollars of a federal grant, if you don't understand the fact that, you know, A, the upkeep on that work, that network is significant, that you're going to have to add significant amount of customer uh, revenue to, to basically be self-sustaining um, and the, that the amount of people that it takes to make that work. I mean, most of these folks don't have sales organizations and engineering and network operations and a knock. And so as they start to think of, oh my gosh, yeah, I can use these assets for my own internal needs, but if I actually want to make them available to the public, not only do I need capital to keep building, but I need working cash to be able to pay these folks and expand my team and, and hire salespeople and pay commission and just do all of the things that are required to act as if you are a real network service provider. I think the other problem is that if you don't have that expectation and you're trying to go out and compete with the likes of an AT&T, an XO, a Level 3, or whomever, and you don't have that back office support infrastructure there, it's going to be hard for someone to make a decision to leave and go with you. And, and I think that's another piece that that people underestimate. And I know we, we hosted a uh, BTOP conference here in Cleveland a couple of years back. And one of the key things that, that people were concerned about is, how do I sell enough to make this network work long term? And, and listening to a lot of the folks that were there in the room, they had no idea on how to, you know, uh, set the demand, you know, in their specific area and understand the, the pricing pressures that they were going to be under. And the fact that even from when people made their application to when they finished their networks was a three-year period. And, and everything from a pricing pressure perspective keeps going down. Uh, and, and so if you built the model in 2010 and now you're three years later and all of a sudden your model's off by 10, 15, 20%, that's pretty significant for you when you don't have any customer revenue to help, you know, mitigate that. So I, I think we are going to see, you know, uh, some interesting things happen over the next few years as, you know, people formally finish all their BTOP uh, grants. And I think you'll end up seeing partnerships and management agreements and things that will come into play where people are going to slowly realize, gosh, I really don't want to manage this asset long term. And there will be an opportunity for, for people to come in and help them. Mm-hmm. Do, um, I've had conversations with folks where I have describe the business community as the primary pillar for success for a community network. Uh, that the one, the, the, There's three pillars. There's basically there's business, 
there's the government at local government as user, and then the third is the consumer. And I consider the consumer, the residential component, the the I don't know the weaker of the three pillars. But if you have a you know if you, if you figure out how to get government to basically replace all of their infrastructure and become a customer on the network, and if you get a significant portion of the businesses in town currently and others that you draw, that that business pillar will indeed be the main thing that sustains the network. Do you share that? Do you guys share that philosophy? Or Because clearly you've built this new arm to go after businesses. Yeah, but I would also say that, I mean, our nonprofit focus, those are, those are real businesses. I mean, you're talking about healthcare institutions that are a billion dollars in revenue. So, I mean, these are real businesses that, are, that they just happen to be in the nonprofit sector. I think the better way to look at it is, you know, what's driving your, what's driving your community? You know, w- w- is, it, is it healthcare? Is it steel? Is it manufacturing? You know, what is it that's, that's pushing your community to, to stay alive and be vibrant and grow? And those are the things that have to be sitting on the network because those are the folks that are going to continue to buy those services in, in a big way to help drive it. I mean, it's, I think it's the general rule of thumb, the old 80-20. You know, 20% of your customers are going to deliver 80% of your revenue. If you don't have some big anchor customers on that network, it's going to be tough to get going and get enough inertia behind you. Um, the government is difficult because while it sounds great to say, hey, I've, I've taken federal money, I'm, investigate, I'm investing it in your communities, you should buy my service. But they've got pretty extensive procurement policies around going out to bid and the terms of the contract and all that. So you could be literally waiting years before you can actually get the government to jump on your network because of long-term contracts and their, their own internal procurement process. Where, where we are seeing it is more of what are the products and services that people want to buy that are potentially outside of their normal contract. So everybody's getting internet from someone today. They're buying it from the cable company or the phone company or a CLEC or whomever, but there are new things that they're doing. So data center connectivity, connectivity to the cloud, those are the types of things that we use as our entree into those, whether it's a business or a nonprofit customer, to get a foothold and push. So, I mean, we've made it our mission to be connected to every data center within our footprint. So there's over 10 data centers that we can provide connectivity to people for. And that's going across whether it's nonprofit, healthcare, government, education, or for for-profit business. So I think it's more about what are the trends in your community? What's driving the community? For us in Northeast Ohio, one of the key drivers is healthcare. Well, we've got some of the largest healthcare institutions in the country are all in Cleveland, in Cleveland, Akron, and our, you know, our surrounding area. And so for us, you know, it doesn't matter if you're going after nonprofit or for-profit, you want to own the healthcare space because that's what's you know, one of the key drivers. We also have a very large higher education community, lots of great colleges and universities, junior colleges, et cetera, throughout our footprint. So those have been a focus for us. Again, kind of those key anchors that you know are going to, to have the right level of spend to buy services from you that can, can help your organization continue to thrive and be sustainable long-term. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the questions I've gotten from the chat room is, um, does one community work with community development corporations in your, in your area? And if you do, what are um, the specifics or some of the specifics of the work that you do with them? We do. Uh, so we do it in a couple different ways. So a lot of times what happened is the CDCs are working on trying to you know, do a, a neighborhood revival or they've got a, a major road improvement or bridge project or something that's going to be happening in their community. And as they're looking to invest in infrastructure 
it, fiber is obviously one of the things that, that's come to play, whether it's to run um, the you know, traffic and safety signals and lights and cameras and all that good stuff, or it's because they understand that if they're going to try to attract businesses into their redeveloped buildings and neighborhoods, that they're going to have to be able to tout that they have fiber infrastructure. So when we, the best way is that the CDCs are approaching us and we're approaching them to say, hey, we're aware of you know, XYZ project that you've got going on that's you know, going to start this year and it's going to be a two- or three- or four-year project. We want to get involved. And so we do a lot of time. In fact, on, our, on the nonprofit side of One Community, we have an entire program team that is focused on, and we've got a specific person on community engagement, which is to make certain that those folks know that we're here and that we want to help them. We have a business development person who's responsible for working with the CDCs and economic development organizations across the region to make certain that as they're trying to figure out how to drive economic development in their communities, that they understand the importance of fiber. So the CDCs play a key role in that you know, A, because they've got money or they're, they're helping raise money. Uh, second, we will partner with them to try to figure out are there follow-on grants that we can receive, whether that's economic development-related, health care, et cetera, that might be tailored towards that specific CDC effort. Uh, so it really depends on what the CDC's project is or, or are for the future, uh, but we absolutely work with the CDCs on a regular basis. Okay. Does, do community foundations fall under the banner of uh, a CDC? No. No, community foundations are different. Um, community uh, development corporations are are a completely different type of entity. Uh, the community foundations, for for us, which is it was uh, news to me as I came into one community. But uh, Cleveland happens to be the second largest uh, philanthropic capital outside of New York City in the United States. There's a significant well, amount of old money, the Rockefellers and 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 the the sorts that started in Cleveland before they actually got to New York. And so we've got the Cleveland Foundation, the Gunn Foundation, the, I mean, a number of very large billion-dollar-plus foundations here in Cleveland who are intimately involved in government, in education, in you know, public works projects, just lots of things. And they've been a big fan of, of ours and have been an, a co-investor with us uh, over the years as well. And, and, and everyone who's running a community-based network should absolutely be dealing with and speaking and, and building relationships with their local foundations in town to understand the types of projects that they're passionate about and how they can co-invest to have kind of a multiplier effect, you know, on, mm-hmm. on the community mm-hmm. network's efforts. Interesting. Now, um, in, you know, you, you, you named a couple of uh, foundations. Are there any foundations that are focusing heavily on um, broadband projects? I know, like, for example, the Ford Foundation dabbles a little bit though trying to pull information out of them was really difficult, so no one wanted to talk about what they were doing. But they, but they nevertheless, they had certain, you know, visions of, you know, supporting broadband projects. Are some of these other foundations, I don't know, more engaged in supporting broadband? I don't think anybody is just out there saying, I want to, I want to invest and donate money in broadband per se or investing in fiber networks. I think what they want to understand really is what are the things that you're going to accomplish that align with my specific goals? So, for example, you know, we've had dialogue with the Gates Foundation. They're very focused on trying to understand how to get engaged learning 
So you know, how do you get children in school to have a different experience with um, with content from different providers and being able to see, you know, talk to doctors real time and, and experience live surgeries or or have a you know an engineering exchange with people from across the country do, doing things that are using technology to further education, for example, is one of the things that they're passionate about. And and I think you have to identify that opportunity within the foundation because most of them are not going to look at just saying, okay, great, I'm going to donate you know a million dollars to help you build a fiber network. That to them sounds like you know, A, maybe the government from a, you know, a, a stimulus type effort, or B, that that's something that you should be able to, you know, if you were going to, in essence, use it for building a business or building an infrastructure, that there's already other ways to raise that money, whether that's public financing through bonds or going to the banks or taking private investments, et cetera. So I, I think unless you have a plan that is very aligned with the, the passion and the, and the focus of that specific foundation, just getting it, them to invest in broadband infrastructure is going to be very difficult. Mm, okay. So it needs to be wrapped up into a, a, a bigger picture. Um, like, for example, I'm trying to remember, I was writing on some project, and what I was asked, oh, I know, so I'm doing this survey of national, uh, this national survey of economic development professionals, and um, one of the questions I asked them is, you know, have they considered a strategy <clears throat> in which they go to entities and say, we're doing a, this bigger project. It may be a, a medical project, a medical health care project. It may be an education project. And in order to do this project, broadband or the network is a part of that and then give them a budget for the whole project but some piece of that budget addresses network build-out. And I'm I'm interested in seeing what the responses are going to be to that question, but I think it goes along the lines of what you're describing, which is um, rather than go say, I need money for a network, uh, which may make some people squeamish, go say, I need money for this project, this research project or what have you, and the network is part of it and make the network infrastructure purchase or build-out part of that overall budget, and you might have more success that way. Uh, you, you absolutely will. I mean, if they don't see a specific alignment to their charter and mission of their organization, it's going to be difficult because you can imagine they've got, you know, a board, a group, advisors internally. They're going to make those decisions on the hundreds of requests that they're getting for for grants, awards, et cetera, and, you know, they're being judged on, you know, how are they doing against the specific mission for their organization. So they need to be able to visualize what you're trying to, to solve and do and then see how that fits into their portfolio of activity. Mm-hmm. Interesting indeed. There's a, there's a lot of, um, you know, I, try, I keep trying to tell folks there are a lot of ways um, to to approach this. And I think that a lot of communities have a very – narrow view of what it takes. It's either they, they feel like they're going to have to pass a bond measure, that gets politically dicey, they're going to have to increase taxes, that becomes a political killer. Um, they, they need to go find a Google uh, to come in and build it for them, and at the end they won't necessarily own the network. And, 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 but the, but their, their worldview is very limited in terms of what their options are, and I've always advocated that if you've done a good needs assessment and you've asked the right questions to, say, the education community, the medical community, uh, you know, just a number of folks locally, and one of those questions are, you know, what kinds of grants are you guys eligible to go chase after, 
that you can create a strategy that is much broader and multifaceted uh, to find ways to fund the network, then I got options A, B, and C, and that's it. And if I don't get any one of those three, we're screwed. Yes, no, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, our our grant team is kind of, you know, segmented, if you will, where we've got one person that's working on economic development, another one that predominantly owns education, you know, one that works on infrastructure, others that's looking at, you know, science and technology grants. So, I mean, we're going after the FCC, the Department of Health, the Department of Commerce, um, the uh, National Science Foundation, I mean, all those different venues, as well as, you know, individual foundations. And when you can partner and find an opportunity that not only has a federal or a state grant that is of interest to a foundation, because in almost every one of these situations, you're going to have grant or grant match requirements. And, you know, as if you're a small fledgling, fledgling network that's trying to get started, you know, coming up with 15, 20, 30 percent match on, you know, on a million dollar ask is not insignificant. And so you really have to have those partnerships built between folks locally, as well as working with the different federal and state agencies to make those, um, you know, applications as, as fruitful as possible. Otherwise, I mean, you'll end up just spending an enormous amount of time um, looking at opportunities and, and not really uh, having a lot of success. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, switch gears a bit here. Um, this has all been this has all been pretty good stuff. Uh, you guys do, um, oh, what is it? Uh, it just popped up here on the screen. Bear with me for a second. Good lordy, uh, these gigabit breakfast mm-hmm. uh, events. What exactly are those, and what do they achieve? The real idea is to get leaders in the community, both you know, uh, business, elected officials, the local foundations, to come see uh, – Lev Ghanakarcio likes to use the term art of the possible. So the idea is to bring people into a room where we can demonstrate to them the benefits of having gigabit speeds and what can you actually do with it. And so most of the time what we're trying to do is, is get a you – know, um, a visual or, or a, an audio type representation that allows people to understand the difference between looking at something or experiencing something at, you know, a 10 meg or 100 meg versus a gigabit and, and what you could do if you had this high speed asset in your specific community, your building, your neighborhood, etc. And so we get a good mix of people coming in that leave a little bit better educated than they were when they got there on why we need gigabit speeds, you know, everywhere. And, mm-hmm. and while, you know, yes, there are plenty of people that are going to say, gosh, we're not going to need a gigabit in our home for a little while. Okay. But then you also have neighborhoods like Kansas City where Google is investing. And, you know, people are coming up with all kinds of new ideas. They're starting small businesses. They're, they're um, you know, going back to school. They're doing a number of things on that bandwidth that they didn't have before. And they're expressing, you know, their excitement about it. Our gigabit breakfast are really to do that as a way to generate excitement, do a little bit of education, and get people bought into the fact that this is something that they should be aware of and supportive of. And you know, and obviously for us, it's it's a way to um, generate some some uh, interest in in the business and you know, some people wanting to buy services and continue to help sustain the organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as one of the uh, guests in the chat room sums up, it's basically hard to conceive that you haven't ever experienced. And these gigabit breakfasts sound like a way to, at some level, have people experience or understand what others have experienced from having that much bandwidth running around the community. That's exactly right. 
Okay. Uh, you know, and that, that makes a lot of sense. Again, I think that's, um, you know, I, I would think that that is something that a community might want to start in conjunction with a pilot project. You know, I, I think that, you know, last decade or two decades ago, I, I started doing marketing work with technology companies and uh, people would set up these pilot projects. Well, I think in the uh, in the 80s and the 90s, if you said you were doing a pilot project, you were primarily trying to figure out the technology work. You know, did it work as advertised and would people use it? Uh, I, I think that in the broadband realm, the objective of the pilot should be to, to both educate as well as be educated as to what you can do with technology. You know, that once it's set, and in fact, I think Philadelphia, for all the issues that they had, one of the things they did was they would, when they did focus groups, was they would bring people in a room, they'd sit them down, they explain what is municipal Wi-Fi, what would it look like, what will it do for them, and then they had five different locations in town where people could go, whichever was closest, to see what's going on with a outdoor muni network. And so it allowed them so, – so they set up the pilot to both test how the different, like, vendor teams could work together, always a big issue, how the technology itself could work, but also as a way, as a platform to educate and motivate and, you know, just totally inspire people that this is the greatest thing going. But it was in conjunction with what was, you know, the phrase, a pilot project, but it was well beyond the, you know, the traditional pilot project. And it seems like, you know, that this broad, this gigabit breakfast is something that you could do in, con, you know, in conjunction with a pilot project. Like, you know, right, you talked about the Cleveland project. I remember reading about that at some point, you know, where you had the, the fiber network in a limited part of town. But, but, you know, do a gigabit breakfast, send people over to, you know, the pilot area, talk to the residents, talk to the people who are using it, and it, it closes a loop, if you will. You know, like, here's knowledge, here's education, here's hype. Now go talk to the people who are actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, the, the listener that said, you know, you don't understand unless you've experienced it. I mean, if you see it with your own eyes or you can walk into a home and see how somebody is using, you know, a gigabit application to drive video conferencing experience where an elderly person is talking to a, a doctor remotely or, you know, able to run a simulator tool that allows for them to, in essence, perform surgery in a, you know, in a virtual theater environment that, that feels like a, a, a real experience and that we're showing doctors doing this you know, in multiple countries across the world and that it allows for an amount of collaboration that's just not possible in you know, a traditional you know, limited bandwidth environment that you to be able to dream and come up with new ideas and products and services, you really need to have that high-speed uh, connectivity available to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, you know, very interesting point. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's very complex. I feel like the, the broadband uh, issue is kind of easy to get people to understand some of the high-level value but I think that one of the things that is a challenge for communities is that there is a lot of complexity here. And you've got to figure out how to present that complexity, you know, to one group of people when you're looking for money and, and grants. You know, how do you present this to another group of folks who you want to be the subscribers on the network? 
uh, you know, how do you present to people so they'll actually use it, you know, as organizations and produce the great stuff that then draws people to the community. And how do you, how do, would you recommend communities get on top of the complexity of all this? Now, you guys have some 40-odd folks as, you know, as staff for, for one community. So you have a fairly decent number of, of people engaged. But in the early days of these network projects, and even in the, you know, in, in the first year or two, they're not going to have as many people, most likely. How do, how, do you, how do you put some order to this potential chaos? Well, I, you know, I can tell you from having, you know, scraped some bruises from when this thing first got started, you know, we originally went after, you know, all of the, the large entities, agencies, you know, the city government, county government, et cetera. But when you try to get all of those folks together, it starts to become pretty convoluted because everybody's got their own specific mission that they're after and and uh, and targets for what this network means to them specifically. And sometimes this is too parochial of a view versus kind of trying to solve a bigger problem for the entire community. And so what, what I think we've learned over the years, and if, if you were going to look at the makeup of our board today versus our board 10 years ago, the preponderance of people on it today are – are more towards um, you know, business leaders or leaders in the largest institutions in your area. So, for example, you know, a, a community college that has you know, 10, 15, 20 locations across our entire footprint, um, you know, one of you know, their presidents is, is on our board, and so we've got somebody that, that looks at what we're trying to solve as, as key to them. We've got you know, a CIO of a you know, Fortune 100 business who is just – passionate about the fact that technology is something that's going to be required to help everyone thrive in the future. And so I think in any community, you have to be able to identify who are the players that, that have the reputation and the passion and the you know, level of energy and support required to help get behind the idea. You know, none of these things are going to happen with you know, just the original people that come up with the idea. I mean, you're going to have to have advocates all across the community to help get you know, interest and, and keep people talking about what's going on. And, and so I think if you don't have some kind of an advisory group that includes people from the community, kind of from, you know, higher education, healthcare, government to a certain extent, but more, again, I'll, I'll go back to what's driving your, your region or your community, whoever it is that's, you know, creating those jobs or keeping people employed, whatever that key industry is for you, someone from there, as well as just, you know, key leaders in the community, civic leaders. I mean, you've got a lot of folks in, in our area that have been involved, for example, in economic development for decades, and ke- keeping them engaged and, and interested in what we're doing has been key. So I think it's more about how many different people can you get excited about it and then try to help corral their enthusiasm. But trying to get, you know, a, a large committee or a board or something like that set up that's, that's very, very formal is sometimes tough. I mean, people aren't necessarily willing to make that commitment. Um, but... I guess it's it's more art than science on coming up with the right mix of people that can help continue to push the message and be passionate about it on a regular basis, but have enough credibility because of their either position in the in the community or their business that they run or operate or whatever that it's going to get people to you know to listen to them and and, and want to understand why they're so passionate about you know having a fiber network in place. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got about five minutes, so I want to kind of wrap things up a little bit. Do you think that getting uh, you know, you talk about when you set up a formal board, people get a little squirrely because they see formal board obligation, time commitments. But can you maybe um, 
structure an informal group and you say, you know, you identify those kinds of people that you've just described, but their only obligation, they don't even have an obligation. You have to basically say, this day, this time, once a month, every three weeks, whatever, we're going to have a you know, round bag lunch and talk about broadband. Because sure. um, in Chattanooga, that's kind of what they did. I don't think they identified, let me rephrase that, they identified key people like leaders and so forth, but they opened it up to the entire community. And the deal was once every few weeks, um, they would have this informal get-together. And, and two people were responsible for, you know, initiating topic points, talking points, whatever. And then everybody would just talk and they'd swap ideas and they'd go home. And you may not see the same people at every gathering. Is something like that maybe, you know, especially in the early days, might that have the same long-term impact? Well, I think it's great if you can get that going. I mean, the key difference in Chattanooga is that you've got an electric utility that bought into the idea and then, you know, was supportive of it and, and is actually helping run it, which is a little bit different than I think a lot of communities that are trying to get something started. So uh, I'll get back to, you know, if you have identified, you know, what are the anchor institutions that you believe that you have to have on the network for your network to be successful, that's a good place to start too. Because if you can't get some of the folks in the community who you believe are going to be your biggest advocates and users of the network and proponents of getting it built, um, then you, you, I think you're kind of you're pushing a rock uphill a little bit. Um, I think what you're talking about, just getting general interest is great, and it has to happen on a regular basis. But at some point, I think you have to have some structure, some committee, someone that, you know, some group of, of citizens, business people, et cetera, that are really taking ownership of it. That education that you just described in the brown bag lunches, I mean, that, that's something that we're still doing, and we've been at it for 10 years. I mean, it's taken us 10 years to get some of the, the people in town that are on the economic development side to see the value of fiber. And so, I mean, this, this is a long road to hoe at getting people, you know, to, to support these initiatives. Um, and I think that's why it's really important that you've got, you know, a key group, you know, five, ten, whatever people it is that are helping, you know, champion are the champions, if you will, for the you know the effort that you're trying to put forth. Mm -hmm. Very interesting indeed. So, do you have any um, in, in the last couple of minutes we have here? Do you have any parting, you know, sort of summary thoughts? Uh, how do you get from I've got this last, I've got this middle mile, I got to get to this last mile? What are maybe one or two points to help people um, I don't know, solidify their thinking and get moving in some direction rather than being paralyzed by the thought of, we just built all this you know, infrastructure, but we still have to do more? <laughs> how, how do you, how, what's your word of advice to get people past that? Well, I, I think there's a, a general misconception that people think because they built something, everyone's aware of it or everyone knows about it, and that's just generally not not true. I mean, yes, they may have heard that a project was awarded money, um, but the amount of energy that we spend being out in the community informing people of what we have going on is a significant – I mean, everyone within the executive team, our grants team, our sales organization are all out sharing that message on a regular basis, and and getting people to understand what they can do with it is key. But, but secondly, you still have to figure out how to pay for it. And, you know, whether that's, you know, a community that is going to go raise, you know, some bond financing to help or they've got extra sales tax dollars or maybe they happen to be, you know, benefiting from the shale gas ex explorations or, you know, something that's happening that, that they can get access to capital, you have to be able to figure out how that's going to work. And 
There's a lot of cities and counties that have different funds to try to help drive economic development, and I would encourage them to spend time with those people and try to get a better understanding of how that capital could be used to support their infrastructure projects. Okay. Well, that has been uh, very helpful. I appreciate you spending time with us today and talking about, uh, you know, your, your latest developments. Congratulations on this. It's a pretty big milestone. And, you know, I'm just awed at the, just the bandwidth, you know, the magnitude of the bandwidth that you're about to drop on those lucky counties. And, and so, you know, thanks for your time, and, and I'll, we'll have you and other folks uh back on the show again sometime great i I appreciate your time and thanks to all the listeners no worries and everyone else thank you very much for spending time uh checking out our show today this has been very uh informative uh we'll be back again soon with more good uh news you can use everybody have a great day we'll talk again soon it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.